Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. How are you, man? You good? Me? Yes. Yes, I'm very well, Christopher. How are you? Good. Uh, we've had our first shop clinic. First shop clinic, yeah. Uh, and it went really well. Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. It, it did. A few teething problems here <laughs> and there, but it was, um, it was a good one. And we had a good podcast with those guys, so I hope you all enjoyed it. I had a good uh, half of a podcast with uh, yeah, one you of did. those guys. You had busier other things I had, to do I had, um, I had to save Dave because it was a bit like a zombie apocalypse downstairs okay. with people coming in the door and Dave only had um, a rake to fight them off with right so okay so you had a stack of vinyl naturally I had a Kalashnikov in my back pocket okay. to come and save the day casually um, so that was the last episode this episode is going to be something different for you all something different for us we it's are, an exciting episode it man really I'm is. so I'm, buzzing yeah yeah we are joined by the, the wonderful Dr. Matt Brennan hello Matt hey how's it going very well and you I'm doing fine. Yeah. First doctor in the house. It is our first doctor. <laughs> yeah. So you are an academic. I am an academic, not a medical doctor. <laughs> so yeah, can't uh, help anyone who's got a heart attack or any other or medical coronavirus. Um, exactly, indeed. Yeah. You, not the kind of doctor you need. <laughs> in an emergency, is there a doctor in the room? Um, can you let everybody know what's up, what you do? For those who maybe don't know who yeah, you are. Um, yeah, sure thing. Um, so my name is Matt and I am a music academic working at the University of Glasgow, although I am originally, you may be surprised to learn, not from Scotland. Uh, <laughs> I am, uh, born in Nova Scotia in uh, Canada. Cool. New and, Scotland. Indeed. And raised in New Brunswick, about an hour and a half away from the Sabian factory. In oh, fact. Wow. Cool. So yes, uh, the drum history kind of goes down through the river from the Sabian factory to <laughs> Fredericton where I was raised but I was uh I moved over to Scotland uh a long time ago now back in 2002 to do oh, a okay. master's degree right and then loved it so much that I just stuck around got really? involved in playing in bands and from a master's to a PhD and uh um, now I'm teaching popular music and music industries, music and society, um, up in the music department at Glasgow Uni. Great. And, wow. um, you've just dropped a new book. That's right. I believe it's called Kick It, The Social History of the Drum Kit. That's right. Cool. Yeah. So we're excited to talk about this because this is something that we don't get to talk about every day. Uh, and I think I, I'm really big fan of th- I did a jazz degree. Um, haha, that's going to be a joke. Yeah. Yep. Uh, at some point. <laughs> and I love the history element that yeah. we got taught um so it's good to see someone acknowledging that the drum kit is perhaps the most socially significant instrument yeah i th- i like to think so yeah, and yeah. I've, I've tried to collect as much evidence to prove that's the case <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was saying to matt on the drive up here it's like do you know like this is probably the episode that makes the most sense in a drummer's podcast to like find the foundations of mm. like why we're all here why yeah, we play the drums. <laughs> yeah totally um so can you give people a sort of broad overview of the book and we'll try and not give away too much content while we talk about it so that people read it. Yeah, 100%. Um, So, I mean, the first thing that's probably important to say is that it's obviously not the first book on the drum kit or the history of the instrument even. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of amazing literature that's come before, great histories of, say, individual drum companies, um, or of the kind of nuts and bolts elements of the construction of drum kits. Um, there's also a lot of great material on, say, the evolution of different drumming styles over history, mm-hmm. or biographies of kind of canonical, really famous drummers who 
who shaped the instrument. So knowing that all those types of books were already out in the world, um, and knowing that I'm as a as a drummer myself. I mean, I, I introduced myself as on the kind of academic <laughs> side of things, but I've also been playing the drum kit, you know, since I was 12 years old. Okay, and so cool. it's a you know it's been a long time <clears throat> obsession of mine, I guess. But when it came to writing a book about the kit, uh, my training is more sort of in sociology and social history mm-hmm. of popular music, and so I really wanted to know, you know, how the drum kit shaped the development of music history but also like how the status of drummers as musicians as artists as types of workers um, how that's evolved over time Mm -hmm. and i also wanted to draw connections between the kit and different genre formations i guess in in the history of popular music in particular because in a lot of existing literature you'll maybe get you know like you were talking about how you studied jazz. So, you know, there are books out there on jazz drumming in particular mm-hmm. and books mm-hmm. out on, you know, funk, mm-hmm. for instance. But there aren't many books that sort of present a real overview of how the drum kit was quite pivotal in the formation mm. of all of these new genres. And mm. when you kind of put that together and realize that actually, you know, the drum kit was right there at, you know, the dawn of the 20th century, there for the birth of jazz, but also central to like all these sub developments in jazz, you know, without the drum kit, no bebop, you know, yeah, like right. that, it mm-hmm. was really the first thing to change mm-hmm. in the evolution of so many jazz styles, but then also crucial to the birth of rhythm and blues, rock and mm-hmm. roll, you know, uh, back in the days of, uh, of the 1950s, you know, some people called it rock and roll. Other people called it beat music. Mm-hmm. That's not so commonplace now that we tend to think of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's absolutely true. So it's pivotal there. Birth of funk, birth of hip hop, disco, electronic <laughs> dance music. Yeah. You can't say that actually for any other instrument. Well, right. You know, you think about maybe other contenders for the most pivotal musical instrument of the last 200 years the electric guitar maybe the synthesizer yeah. you know they're obviously very important instruments but they're not they don't have that longevity yeah <laughs> uh and they also you know they, they come in at particular moments in history but if we're thinking about like in a way how how modernity itself <laughs> <laughs> develops right the drum kit is a really interesting lens to look at the last 200 years of human history, right. essentially, yeah. and uh-huh. cultural history. So the book is, you know, that, that makes it sound a little super grand and ambitious, but really it's, it's just trying to think about, <laughs> you know, in a nutshell, how uh, the drum kit is an instrument, drummers as musicians and drumming as a practice have changed and been shaped by world events and also gone on to shape cultural history mm. over the past century and a half or so man wow. <laughs> not, not a light topic is it so no. we're not going to get through it all in one no podcast. of course not, <laughs> uh, of course not. Uh, it becomes a david lean film um, that's right so i guess man like if looking at um, the, the sort of contents of the book and things it kind of starts with slaves aha uh-huh, with the transatlantic slave trade yeah it in a way it doesn't have a single starting point right but Certainly, you could make the argument that the drum kit 
coalesced on American soil and that although the combination of, say, if we think of a drum kit as as its most essential Mm -hmm. as someone making the decision to take that bass drum that was maybe strapped to their chest in a marching band Mm -hmm. and say, actually, I'm going to put this on the floor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sounds easier. And then, you know, after a period of time thinking, actually, I'm going to maybe fashion some sort of device that will allow me to play this drum with my foot. Uh And then thinking about once that's occurred, the the bass drum, the snare drum, and some array of a pair of cymbals or or even a single cymbal being the kind of very core of that instrument. Um, That, the bass drum, snare drum, and cymbals existed in different musical cultures in Europe, for instance. Yeah, Yeah, for a long time, right? But it took a certain type of music to kind of bring that instrument to life. And that music was the music um, of the African-American diaspora from the slave trade, uh, sort of mixing and intermingling with all these different styles in the United States, and then kind of illuminating the potential of the combination of those three percussion instruments. Uh So that's why the book starts with the transatlantic slave trade is that you could say actually the the kick drum snare drum and cymbals come together in europe but they don't really have the impact that they're going to have and that that potential of that as a revolutionary instrument is not fully demonstrated until that mixes with the particular blend of musical cultures that were happening in the united states as a result of um the slave trade and these diasporic musical yeah. traditions. Mm. Do you think of it because it was regular people playing it? Absolutely. Regular people playing it and regular people inventing it. Yeah. This is actually really important. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about other instruments, say the history of the trumpet, you know, trumpet players aren't going around in the 19th century thinking, ah, I've got this brilliant instrument, but if only I could make it more <laughs> compact and portable, you know? Or if only, <laughs> right? Like, that doesn't happen yeah, in yeah. the history of lots of other instruments. And, you know, they, they tend to change much more slowly. Um, they tend to come from, uh, you know, centers of musical instrument making that are already at quite a far remove from practitioners Mm -hmm. but the drum kit has this history where it's really you know shaped by in in its early days practicing drummers who were looking for solutions Mm -hmm. to problems in their working lives right (laughs) you know like it's a problem (laughs) if i've got uh, an orchestra director in the 19th century saying to the symphony listen we need to recreate a military battle scene here we're in a really cramped orchestra pit and we've only got one percussionist right when you when the sound that you're trying to recreate is that of 10 percussionists mm-hmm. on the field you know mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. playing uh well i mean um we can think about the pipe and drum bands of scotland yeah, yeah, as being totally. one of those instrument mm-hmm. uh one of those influences but lots of different military influences as mm-hmm. well right uh, mm-hmm. in in different nations and traditions uh, when it comes to trying to like reproduce that sound in musical theater in the 19th century in operettas, you know suddenly drummers are having to get kind of crafty, mm-hmm. and they're all, so they're having to like um, solve problems of labor. How do I, as one person, play what ordinarily three different people would be playing? Mm-hmm. And then B, 
uh, problems of space. Mm. How do I do what was meant to be played out on like an open field, launching yeah. people into battle? Yeah, yeah. How do I do that in like four square feet of space? <laughs> You know, in a Manhattan theater that's a fire hazard, right? Like, that is the crucible in which the drum kit starts to take shape. Don't think much has changed there. That's right. <laughs> um, so then, how does it become a timekeeping instrument? Yeah, that's a really interesting from, question. From, like, because if you're talking about it used as a war instrument, like, from my understanding, as you might, you might prove me wrong, but rudiments were field calls right yeah that's right so they would have been played in time yeah but then the 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 whole kit is it the whole drum kit as we know it yeah how does it go from that when it's signaling something to being a timekeeper instrument so definitely drums in a military context they had several functions one is exactly as you're pointing out like um different rudiments or calls would signal different actions yeah. so you know they have um, drum signals like the reve, which is the wake-up call, essentially, mm. right, <laughs> of, of the 19th century, before you could phone it into the reception downstairs. <laughs> um, there was also a timekeeping function in a military context, obviously, for um, for regimenting soldiers and, and getting them to march mm. in order in an imposing way. That's something that really comes from uh, the Ottoman Empire, mm. uh, and Turkish Janissaries in particular, they were they were the first military bands, uh, and this is going back all the way to the 14th century. Um, they were the first military music to really bring something that had some. It wasn't exactly a bass drum, but it had a relationship to it. It was you know um, a double-headed, you know, mm. large drum, and it was played in combination with cymbals. Mm. And this music was. Uh, really really different from what was going on on the european continent where you had um swiss fife and drum players uh you know sort of playing a predecessor to the snare drum uh -huh. the side drum very similar actually to what you would find in a, a scottish pipe snare drum mm -hmm. you know uh nowadays but uh the kick drum the cymbals in these uh janissaries they would they would come together and Oh, geez, I'm losing my train of thought here. What was your original so question? How did it go from being... Oh, to a timekeeping device. Yeah, a time, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, Matt, you're all off in the 14th century now. <laughs> this is the problem when you ask an historian a question, is that like we get lost and forget what century we're in. It's becoming it, a timekeeping device. So, you know, those different inf influences over the centuries start to um, cr create a timekeeping function as well as a kind of communication function in a military context. Um and what's interesting, I guess, is that those influences start to manifest themselves in concert music, uh, by which I mean like people seated in an auditorium. Mm -hmm. So you'll find in classical music by the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, um, for any drummers who um, are maybe studying in a kind of percussion degree or a classical music degree, you might see occasionally um, a wee description on a score that says Alaturka. And that means like the Turkish Janissaries, essentially. Right. It means hit bass drums and cymbals right. and make it sound like a march. Uh -huh. um, so already by the beginning of the 19th century, you have bass drum and cymbals and sometimes snare drum performing a sort of underlying timekeeping function and adding a sense of excitement to music. Uh, but by the time you reach the turn of the 20th century and say ragtime music, mm -hmm. where suddenly those African-American 
uh, polyrhythms are mm, coming mm-hmm. in, that syncopation is coming in, that sense of improvisation is coming in, that's when uh, the, the drum kit or bass drum, snare drum, and cymbals provide a timekeeping function, which is also um, providing something additional, something that we might call groove or pulse, which is actually like so penetrating that it begins to take the spotlight away <laughs> from the harmony and melody that's happening. And what people actually start desiring is that beat, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this becomes really apparent in dance music. So a- another way of answering your question is that in 1800, if I wanted to throw a party and I wanted it to be a dance party, it would look pretty different in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> but one but one key element is that if I hired a, a band, you know, or a group of musicians to to play that music for dancing, it wouldn't necessarily include percussion or drums. Mm-hmm. In fact, often it would not. Okay. By 1900, that situation has changed and you're starting to see um, this really early precursor to the drum kit, which was known then as the trap drummer's outfit, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, being maybe the second thing they would look for after a piano. Right. This combination of piano and drums seemed to be like the core two things that w- you would have, whether or not that was for scoring a silent film mm. or whether it was for providing um, some background dance music for dancers. Mm-hmm. And then by 1920... You can't have dance music without the drum kit. Right. It's yeah. actually become essential. A and staple. the very notion of a rhythm section, you know, that's a concept that has a history as well. 1800, people didn't really talk of the rhythm section, mm. right? Mm. By 1920, this notion of the rhythm section being the drummer and then some sort of bass instrument. It could be an upright bass or it could be like a tuba mm-hmm. or yeah. a sousaphone at mm-hmm. that time. <laughs> um, but some sort of notion where you've got both that percussive rhythmic timekeeping element and then that um, uh, pitched bass instrument letting you know where those chords are going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- those are providing the foundation mm. of the music. And that's super important for dancing. And then people decide, actually, we also really rather just like sitting down and listening to this stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause it, but, wow. So it, it would have still been providing color as well right because things like oh yeah you talk about like bones and and that kind of thing that these cowbells and other that was super prevalent yeah yeah in the early 20th century so Mm -hmm. it's like it's still got this orchestral element where these instruments were used to provide texture and color within an orchestra but also this rhythmic element now to get people moving 100 percent, yeah no in the early 20th century you know just as nowadays you know okay you've kind of got your your core sense of okay you got a kick drum you got your rack tom floor tom snare drum mm-hmm. pair of hi-hats ride cymbal crash cymbal that's maybe what we would call a sort of basic mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. drum kit in the 21st century and that's really something that kind of takes shape from the mid-1930s really from gene krupa onward yeah. and his influence on the kit but prior to that um you still had these things called trap drummers out- outfits what we would call early drum kits um uh, but the a key difference was that they had all these bonkers accessories right so cowbells but also temple blocks chinese temple blocks were considered like super essential in the 1920s very common um in in the jazz age like say from the end of world war one up to the end of the 1920s 
It would also not be uncommon to have things like car motor horns uh, (laughs) attached. So like klaxons, motor horns, ratchets, exactly. All that stuff um, would be attached to the rim of the bass drum or sometimes there would be a little um, table, like almost like a music stand affixed to the top of that bass drum called the trap table. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where they would put all these additional effects. But that was seen as being like very much a core element of what a drummer was supposed to do. And part of that is coming from uh, basically just injecting a sense of subversion into music that, you know, oh, we're okay. going to play these right. things that people would ordinarily classify as just noisemakers, mm-hmm. but we're going to make music with them. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, part of the great appeal of mm-hmm. jazz. That was the same way in which a trombone player might say, I'm going to make this trombone through sliding it in an mm-hmm. unconventional way, something that the designer of a trombone had never intended and would have cringed at probably. I'm going to make it sound like mm-hmm. an animal, you know, brawling or something mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. Um, so too with the drummer then say, oh yeah, well, I'm going to like make my drum kit sound like a factory or a car, <laughs> but I'm going to throw down some rhythm that you can dance to with this yeah, as yeah. well. Um, so drums were considered to be highly noisy devices. Like, you know, and, and then we can also talk about this tension between musical instruments or, or, or noisemakers. That's mm-hmm. another thing that the drummer sort of starts to shape. And that happens in dance music, also happens in classical music. But, but yeah, these things were, were absolutely central to, mm-hmm. to those early drum kits. Yeah. And from my understanding of the history of the music, it's really when the ride symbol came around uh-huh. that it really changed. Yeah, that was cer- certainly... So that was like 40s? Yeah, a huge shift. You will see... Um, in the by the end of the 20s and into the 1930s, people playing something that we might hear as a ride pattern yeah. mm-hmm. for parts of a song. So they would have a suspended symbol. Certainly, there was no such thing called a ride. No, no. <laughs> let's get that yeah. straight. Um, there were symbols, and it was very common if you were going to have. Um, this is also sort of predating the hi-hat, which really only comes into play at the end of the 1920s as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you had one symbol, you would probably have a Turkish symbol uh, made by a Zildjian or someone trying to imitate a Zildjian symbol. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it would look, you know, very much like a crash symbol nowadays, um, probably smaller and thicker than Mm -hmm. uh, the fashion is for symbols nowadays. Mm -hmm. And it would also be very common to have a Chinese symbol, actually. Mm -hmm. These were very popular symbols on on drum kits throughout the 1920s. But definitely nothing looking like a ride. Mm -hmm. Although you can listen to uh, jazz recordings at the tail end of the 1920s, say Louis Armstrong with Zeddy Singleton or or drummers like that, and they will play these little breaks, Mm -hmm. essentially, Mm -hmm. where there's a moment in the song where... They'll do something like a dang, 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 cha, mm. and then they'll choke that symbol. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you can almost mm. hear it in your head. You mm-hmm. know, as it's become quite commonplace as a kind of signifier of a particular era of jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was more used in the way that we might play a drum fill mm. now. Okay, you know, yeah. to kind of punctuate at the end of eight bars. All right, we're going into the bridge. So, you know, and then you'd be back to playing those roles on the snare drum and a pulse on the kick drum. Mm -hmm. Uh, But over the course of the 1930s, the first major thing to happen is that uh, Avidus Zildjian moves 
to the United States mm-hmm. and establishes an American Zildjian factory in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. This is the first time that Zildjian symbols were actually being made in the United States and close to um, close to the jazz world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Zildjian, in order to figure out how to sell more symbols, starts asking drummers, like, what do you need? And drummers like Gene Krupa and other prominent players in the 1930s say, we like your symbols, but could you make them thinner? And could you make them larger? Mm-hmm. And over the course of the 1930s, that gradually evolves oh, okay. into a right point where by the 1940s, you have something like a bounce symbol or oh, okay. or a ride symbol. And the first pers- first drummer to really kind of use that to its full potential, by which I mean playing what we now think of as like the standard jazz ride symbol pattern mm-hmm. throughout an entire song, mm-hmm. would be Kenny Clark. Yeah. Uh, right right when World War II breaks out. Mm-hmm. It's actually very difficult to pinpoint it because very few recordings were being made at that time mm-hmm. um, due to a shortage in shellac, actually. Because oh, wow. of the war, shellac was being rationed, and also there was a musicians' union uh, strike where they banned <laughs> oh, recordings great. for a couple of years between oh, wow. 1942 and 1944. So, like, almost no recordings from that really key moment in drumming history exist. But... Most people say it's Kenny Clark um, playing in uh, Upper Manhattan who begins to to make that transition, which is then consolidated by Max Roach Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1940s. And once Max starts kicking that into gear with the ride cymbal, like, everyone's doing it. Mm. Yeah, Because the music was getting too fast, right? They couldn't play it any other way. Well... From what I remember. Yeah, it's a a combination of various factors. You know... um, it's it's a matter of speed, complexity, mm-hmm. uh, but also it's a matter of um, basically it's it's an it's an economic necessity at a certain stage. Once World War II hits, um, a lot of large dance bands either break up because of uh, musicians being drafted into the war, or uh, it becomes. Uh, economically hard times, I guess. So, you know, this this touring circuit that big bands once had, uh, people start looking for different ways to make a living out of music. And one way is reducing the size of the band, <laughs> mm. oh, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down to smaller groups. And yeah. so, uh, so bebop bands, you know, jazz trios and quartets enter a phase of, of popularity, partly just changing taste, but then also some of these societal factors that I've been describing are, are also at play there. Uh, and with that, they're basically that kind of frees up the drummer to start doing different things. And crucially, this music isn't necessarily always being uh, something that that folk are automatically going to dance to. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. You know, a moment when jazz starts to move into small clubs, and people are mostly kind of sitting down to to listen to this stuff, mm-hmm. maybe have a drink while listening to it. Um, but that four on the floor pulse no longer super required so that timekeeping element starts to move over to the symbol via drummers like kenny clark and others yeah. and that also frees them up to do slightly strange things at the time you know accenting and punctuating mm-hmm. and entering into a dialogue mm-hmm. on the kick drum and, and snare drum with their fellow musicians in that mm-hmm. small group so that's a very like tiny condensed <laughs> way of explaining some of the things uh-huh. that affect that transition over to keeping time on the ride symbol um and you got to also remember Philly, or sorry, Papa Joe Jones, rather, 
was keeping time on the hi-hat throughout the second half of the 1930s as well. Yeah, yeah. Again, maybe not for entire songs, but in mm. shorter bursts. So, you know, it's it's not like there's, you know, one moment where, you know, yeah, totally. there's a, a switch. Yeah. There's an evolution. It's, it's, it's gradual. Um, but certainly the 1930s, almost no one is playing time uh, on a cymbal for the duration of a song. By the mid nineteen forties, loads of people are. Yeah, yeah. it's the wow. thing to do. That's really fascinating. That's yeah. I, I had absolutely no idea because I, I did. I'm that naive that I did think it was like, oh, here's a right symbol now. Yeah. You know, like no, of, of course totally it makes total sense. I mean, hi hats used to be played almost on the floor, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, they were called sock symbols because sock symbols are low boys. Yeah. Yep, and also <laughs> snowshoe pedals that oh, based wow. on the design of some of the the way they looked. It almost looked a bit like a like a snowshoe. Um, but yeah, clanging two cymbals together with your with your left foot, um, it it took a little time before the notion of taking those from foot level mm-hmm. and raising them up where you could also start doing stuff with your hands by means of this metal shaft, mm-hmm. um, you know, towards something that we now call the hi hat pedal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that 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 took some time. Interestingly, the term hi hat, no, there is no solid evidence that we have as to like where that name comes from but one thing i encountered and this is sort of a pet theory of mine <laughs> you can just stop me talking if uh, <laughs> I, don't know, no, I will go off on tangents this is um, great. but uh, but what's interesting is that in the 1920s um in men's fashion the the kind of posh headwear of the day was the top hat also known as the high hat right right and high hats by which I mean, like, you know, the fancy hats, kind of of the kind like Abraham Lincoln had. If or if you need like a mental picture, you know, uh, they they'd moved on a bit. They weren't as tall. Um, but the other key thing with these high hats in the 1920s, they were fashionable and they collapsed. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so oh, these hats you wear yeah. on your head squished down, Magician's so they were hat. more portable. Yeah, yeah. And you can think of the t- top uh, bit of that high hat as being a bit smaller than the bottom rim, and early advertisements for the hi-hat stand mirrors that exactly in that they weren't it wasn't like you had a 14 inch bottom and a 14 inch top mm-hmm. you had the top which was a bit smaller <laughs> oh. than the bottom yeah. and and you know i think although you know and i've looked for archival ev- evidence to like trace exactly this origin mm-hmm. um but i think one plausible explanation is that the hi-hat gets its name from the resemblance that it bore to a collapsible top hat or Amazing. men's hat. That's yeah. fascinating. Wow. So, so like, what's what sparked this whole urge to write this book? Yeah, I yeah. Like, what? <laughs> I guess that's my my follow-up question to all of this. Sure. Be like, um, well, I guess like Chris, I when I left high school, this was in. New Brunswick, Canada, some years ago now, uh, (laughs) I decided, okay, you know what I love to do is play the drums. Uh, So I'm going to go do a jazz drumming degree. And so I went to a jazz drumming degree uh, in Montreal. And when I got there, the first thing I noticed was that although in my small town, I'd been, you know, like, not top of the heap drummer necessarily, but like, you know, a decent drummer. Mm-hmm. When I got to Montreal, I was like, just scraping by, you know? <laughs> oh my goodness, the level of players there. I was like, I had to practice, you know, six, seven hours a day just to like stay afloat, you know? Mm-hmm. And 
And that was good, and I really enjoyed doing it, but it also made me realize, oh, my God, being a pro, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. pro gig and jazz drummer, that is a, you know, you have to be, A, super, super talented and super, super disciplined to make a decent living out of being a jazz drummer. And and so that made me sort of question, like, whether that was necessarily where my skill set laid, because the simultaneous re- uh, realization that I had was that I love books mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually I liked writing. <laughs> uh, so and I and I was asking all these questions that my fellow drummers didn't seem to care about, <laughs> you know, so like, you know, what's the meaning of this yeah. or, you know, uh, what's, you know, how, how I, we take these, you know, my elective course in sociology where they're talking about different social movements and like how they influenced cultural and political history like how might we apply that to music i I was a nerd essentially is what i'm trying (laughs) to say i was really interested in these questions and i also loved playing the kit um and by the end of my undergraduate degree i had transferred out of a jazz drumming degree and into a degree uh in english and philosophy through which i became interested in uh the study of popular culture on the one hand and musical aesthetics on the other and the whole reason i moved to scotland from Canada was that one uh, day in, in my undergraduate days, I was reading this book called Performing Rights on the Value of Popular Music. And it was written by a guy named Simon Frith. And I'd never heard this guy's name before, but I loved this book. He, he was talking about, you know, why we value music. And like, I was getting revved up by this. I was so excited by it. Uh, I Googled up his name. And it came up, professor at the University of Sterling. I was like, what is Sterling? <laughs> I had no clue. People still ask. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a great time at Sterling, actually. Uh, but so much history. In any case, I, I gave this guy an email, and he was an eminent sociologist of music and sort of a pioneer of studying popular music in universities Mm -hmm. like you know where i came from you studied jazz or you studied classical music studying in rock and roll in university like not yet a thing oh really maybe outside Mm -hmm. like berkeley college in Uh, boston you know mm -hmm. it was definitely like not on the table as an option at the university i went to study at and you know that maybe shows you how long ago this was happening (laughs) but uh um but it was a real eye-opener to me that you could actually like go and do serious research on this And that was when I was 22 years old. And that's really, that's what made me move from Canada to the UK. And that's what got me interested in writing books, uh, generally speaking. And so by the the time I had kind of gotten into that world in my mid-20s, I thought, I really want to write a book on the drum kit. Mm-hmm. And I really want a book that asks the kind of questions that mm-hmm. I don't think have been answered yet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I'm that I'm really keen to investigate. And then I got a little bit distracted, started playing in bands. Uh, mm-hmm. But essentially, I, I spent, you know, I, I had this idea for doing this book 10 years ago. And I spent the last 10 years gradually in my spare time chipping away at this as wow. a kind of like solo project. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, while doing lots of other things like Mm -hmm. getting qualifications and having a job and paying rent and Mm -hmm. and also playing in bands and making records and this sort of thing uh and uh and then finally for it to to come out just a couple weeks ago amazing yeah amazing so that's a very long answer to your question oh no it's great so that's like 10 years worth of 
of all this it's kind of led you to this point that's, yeah that's yeah really cool. that's right yeah, yeah. so with the music then we've got to the point where we've kind of got a ride symbol and all that now mm-hmm. how do you get to a backbeat Cause yeah because it, it you know if we're talking about how this instrument functions within popular music there comes a point where jazz is not so popular now yeah you know and but all those we've straightened it out and there's a backbeat and for sure so the backbeat has a pretty long history as well um the super condensed version of it is the backbeat predates someone throwing down a two and four on the snare drum right uh when we think of the gospel tradition and that kind of you know clapping on two and four okay Hmm. uh people are doing a backbeat even though it's maybe not on the drums right in american popular music for some time before people start playing it consistently on the snare on two and four and even in the 1930s similar actually to the evolution of the ride cymbal people are maybe trying out the backbeat <laughs> or using it to like you know, at the end of a song to really, like, give it emphasis. Mm. So you can mm. listen, for instance, to um, Benny Goodman's famous live concert recording at Carnegie Hall in 1938 with Krupa on drums, and you'll hear him mm. very distinctly, not for the whole duration of a song, but for sections, just thump out <laughs> that backbeat, and mm. the crowd goes crazy for it, oh. right? But it's really to, like, emphasize a certain section of a, a song rather than mm-hmm. to kind of, like, provide the underlying pulse for its duration mm-hmm. um so when we talk about the backbeat moving over to uh snare drum and being played consistently throughout a song we're really looking to the second half of the 1940s so post-world war ii that mm-hmm. starts to happen in uh what at the time were called race records so uh you know super controversial to even think that that was like a an official nomenclature of a of a chart of a record chart at the time um but what they're trying to describe is um uh, music intended dance music intended for african-american audiences mm. uh, and it, on the billboard charts in the same way that you would have like a pop and a country chart you would have a race chart whoa. yeah throughout the Seriously, 1940s whoa. and it was only until 1949 that uh, a guy named jerry wexler uh said actually do you know what i don't think it's appropriate (laughs) to uh sort of segregate and and ghettoize this particular kind of music in that way uh and so billboard asked this guy jerry wexler who went on to co-found atlantic records um you know like well what would you use instead we need to like designate this particular type of music because this is the way we think the market of popular music works and he's like well how about we call it something like rhythm and blues and overnight, the race records chart in 1949 became designated the rhythm and blues chart. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. True story. <laughs> <laughs> True story, bro. Um, and while all that was happening in the second half of the 1940s, you have significantly in New Orleans, but also in Chicago, drummers starting to lay down a backbeat for either the majority or the full extent of a song. The track that most people cite as kind of being the origin of the uh, backbeat is a Fats Domino recording, I think from 1948, called The Fat Man with um, Earl Palmer mm. on the drums. Okay, great. Who went on to play with Little Richard yeah. and like loads of uh, amazing yeah. records. 
Earl Palmer, also significantly the guy who's attributed with taking that swing pattern on the ride cymbal and straightening it out. Right. <laughs> so moving from, you know, dang, 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 to dang, 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 was purely to follow Little Richard's hand as he was pounding out the straight eighth notes on the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just naturally started moving over. But if you listen to like early Elvis Presley recordings from around the same time, it's really strange because it's got this mix of like straight feel and swing feel. And a lot of like 1950s rock and roll records are characterized by that. Sometimes there's like half the band is playing straight, like, or Chuck Berry's playing like a straight kind of guitar, yeah. but the drummer's swinging behind him. And so there's this really interesting transitional period. Um, but that all is all sort of wrapped up in this move to reliance on the backbeat. And by b- between the period 1945 and 1955, suddenly by 1955, you have that being a really integral part of dance music of the day, which is why uh, it was sometimes called rock and roll, but just as frequently called beat music. Mm-hmm. And you have these descriptions in American magazines of that time trying to define exactly what this music was and why it was, you know, really successful with teenage audiences. And they say very distinctly, there's this strange beat on two and four that's like really insistent and happens all the way through a song. Like we don't know what's happening, Mm. but people really seem to like it. And so that wasn't to say that it started happening in 1955, but by that point, everyone was noticing that this was uh, an increasingly popular element of hit records. So, okay. mic drop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's just, there's so many questions keep coming up. But then, so like ten years later, so we say we're in the mid fifties. Ten years later, you have drummers as celebrities because you have guys like Ringo and all these people coming out that are making this music even more popular now. Uh-huh. Because the Beatles, when they came around, like sixty three, is it sixty three? They were yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and so many I mean, people they, talk they were, about that. Ringo joined the band in sixty two, I believe, right. and then by sixty three there was Beatlemania in the UK, and in February nineteen sixty four, that was the famous Ed Sullivan appearance in the United States. So, but they're playing rock and roll. Yeah, for sure. With Twisted Shout and all these things that were old rock and roll tunes. Right? All these Chuck Berry tunes, Fast yeah. Domino tunes, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you get drummer as a celebrity then from that? Because like guys like Gene Krupa were around, but they weren't. Cel- they weren't. You know, you can't discount the celebrity status of Gene Krupa in the first oh, no, half of the twentieth century. No, no, he no. was, he was as big as Hollywood actors. Really? Were. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Yeah, wow. he was. A big, big star. He was the guy. Well, like, yeah. and this was what famously led to uh, him uh, leaving the Benny Goodman band was that Benny Goodman couldn't stand the fact that his drummer was more popular than he was. Oh, wow. Um, and and that was true uh, by all accounts. Krupa was probably the best known pop musician of the 1930s. I mean. Mm. Maybe apart from singers, but maybe the best known in- instrumentalist, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. He certainly was exceptionally popular and mm-hmm. more popular than any drummer had been before in public consciousness. The first global drum superstar, I would say as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Jazz music was really the first American music to really make a global impact and travel all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he continued to be the most famous drumming star uh, until Ringo mm-hmm. in okay the early 1960s so in like in the 1930s he was like the jazz 1930s beyonce 
Like, exactly. He was, just like, <laughs> he was he was jazz Beyonce. He was jazz Beyonce. That <laughs> analogy breaks down at some point. But yeah, <laughs> sure. yeah. Well, but, but he he was a big star. Yeah, for sure. He yeah. was in film as well, wasn't he? He was in film. He was all over the radio. He was on the covers of magazines. Um, he was he was a good looking guy as well. So he he had a kind of movie star uh, visual quality to him that uh, say his band leader Benny Goodman did not have. Mm, right. um, and also, um, it should be said, he was the first big celebrity musician who was taking uh, this music which had been innovated and developed by African Americans and putting it over with a white face to a white audience in the same way that Elvis Presley would do with rhythm and blues, okay. mm. in the same way that, say, Eminem does yeah, yeah. with rap in the late 1990s. This mm-hmm. is a story which happens over and over again in, yeah. uh, in popular culture. So, okay, so every time you, you, you give, me an, <laughs> uh, give us an answer, I want to, like, there's about 20 questions. So we're talking now that genre is becoming a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have... Jazz was the popular music, and I guess for a, for a long t- a long time there would probably be jazz and classical, right? Maybe some others, but we're now getting into rock and roll, jazz. How does the role of the drums change with genre? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, one of the key arguments that I try and make in the book is that although we tend to think about traditionally the formation or creation of new music genres being associated with uh, a particular singer-songwriter or singer or band leader. When you actually look at the genesis of those genres, what is often driving that change is the drum kit. And that can be said from the very birth of jazz down onwards. So certainly when I was studying jazz history in university, you know, when we were taught where how that music developed it you know t- almost always taught by someone who played saxophone or trumpet themselves mm. uh <laughs> they would say well there were these famous saxophone and trumpet players <laughs> go figure <laughs> and they invented this music and everyone followed along but it was these amazing soloists who were able to play improvised you know like <laughs> innovative right? <laughs> blue scales over uh, particular changes in music What's interesting is that when you actually go back to the news coverage and like, you know, digital search is an amazing thing now, like Mm -hmm. you just couldn't do 20 years ago when I was being taught these courses Mm -hmm. um, is I can actually go to, you know, to check out like give me all of the hits where jazz is mentioned in the New York Times between 1916 and 1920 and see what they're actually talking about or in the London Times for that matter. Mm. Um, What's really interesting is that frequently they're not talking about the trumpet or the saxophone. <laughs> They're talking about the drum kit. Because the drum kit is this brand new instrument. No one knows what the heck it is. Mm. It's there on stage with all these other instruments that they recognize. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is, is it an instrument? What is it? <laughs> like, it's got, and remember, at the time, it's got like car motor horns <laughs> and like cowbells and things that like are not instruments for most people, right? Uh, and even today, still, like, you'd be wondering, like, what the heck is that doing up there? Like, are they making music or are they making noise with this thing? And so jazz was frequently described as an intensely noisy music. And the central driver of that noise, what was making this music different from music that had come before, was the drummer and the presence of the drum kit. Mm-hmm. And really interestingly, when you look outside of uh, coverage in the United States, when jazz begins to move over to places like France and Germany and Australia, 
for those places, when they try and des- describe what this new American phenomenon known as jazz is, basically, a lot of the critics at the time say what the what constitutes the jazz in the band is the drummer. Mm. If if it has a drum kit, it's a jazz band. If it doesn't have a drum kit, it's not a jazz band, mm-hmm. right? Like that is the defining feature of yeah. that music, at least for those people who are encountering it for the first time. Now, obviously, the development of that music is much more complex than that. Mm. But from a public perception perspective, what makes that such a sensational music by, and by which I mean like grabs hold of the public imagination and becomes worth talking about and worth spreading around and popularizing is the presence of this new instrument called the drum kit. The same thing could easily be said of uh, the birth and rock, of rock and roll. People are very well used to the drum kit by that point, but, uh, but it's this insistence, this new role that the drum kit is playing, functioning, hammering that two and four on the backbeat mm-hmm. that forces people to say like, what are we talking about? Well, I guess we'll call it beat music. You know, what are these groups that are forming in the UK in the early 1960s? They're not called rock groups in the NME and the Melody Maker, which were the two kind of key music papers of that time. Uh, they're called beat groups. The, there's a clue in the name of the Beatles, uh-huh. like as to like what they think the most important element of that music is. Right? They were not called that by accident or because they couldn't think of anything else. It's because all that music was being referred to as the Mersey Beat sound. These were beat groups that were playing. If you were, you know, it made sense to call yourself the Beatles. That is what that name is signifying. Oh, right? Okay. Uh, is that consistent beat element? and the drummer hammering it super hard. Um, so you could also say the same of the birth of hip-hop, for instance. You know, we think, yeah, actually, like, there's no, like, live drum kit, unless we're talking about The Roots or, or some band mm. like that. Um, you know, really, when we think of the birth of hip-hop, what we're talking about is two turntables and a microphone, or that's yeah, the, the yeah. sort of, like, in a nutshell legend that we get when we when we think about the origins but let's like actually examine that in 1973 there is a dj named cool herc who is throwing parties dance parties in the bronx in new york city and he has this uh innovative idea to take two records which are identical to one another and play the part that the audience likes the most out of that record he notices as a dj basically that you know just as today's dance parties you know he's looking at the crowd he's playing his records and he's thinking ah kids are really responding to like this section of the record and then they kind of lose interest and that means maybe i need to change the record Mm -hmm. or like move on to another record but Mm. he's looking for the parts of the song that really get the audience going and what is that part of the song inevitably always it's the drum break Mm. right it is the where as was common uh, in the late 1960s for, uh, for dance records to have, there's a moment where the band drops out and you've just got the drums, mm-hmm. or maybe drums and bass, or maybe drums and congas and percussion. And Cool Herc notices that that is the moment when the crowd goes wild in these dance parties. So when he, you know, the whole point of him having this idea to um, buy two copies of the same record, put them on the turntable, play the groove of one, and then... Uh, fade over to the other to play the exact same groove to keep the party going it's the drum break that is driving all of that right so from the very beginning of hip-hop 
the drum kit, or at least the sounds of the drum kit as played on record, and then translated through turntable, is what's driving forward that culture and that music, right? Uh, and Cool Herc says this himself about, you know, that, that moment in time in the early 1970s. The same could be said of disco. The same could, you know, um, in a very similar way, actually, to hip-hop, where they're basically just extending drum break and percussion breaks um, in dance music. Or whether, on the other hand, it's record producers realizing that this is what dancers want as well. And you have folk like Giorgio Moroder saying, you know what, let's just... Uh, to use as many possible channels as we can to record that drum kit. Uh-huh. Um, and, and here we get into kind of record production taking over. You know, we got to remember that like in the beginning of the 1960s, records were being made either on a stereo track, like two tracks for a whole <laughs> band, or four tracks by the mid-1960s. Mm-hmm. By the end of the 1960s, you have eight channels. What are you going to put on those channels? You know, interestingly, the answer is not always more instruments. What a lot of engineers decide the thing to do is is actually let's take this drum kit and use four channels just for the kit, wow. right? Yeah. And separate the kick and the snare drum and, you know, a couple of overheads or whatever it happens to be. As record mixing consoles increase in the number of channels that are available, you know, nowadays, obviously, it's limitless. Um, but, you know, at the end of the 1960s, you were lucky to have eight tracks. Throughout the 1970s, suddenly you get to 16 to 24 to 48 you know, what en- inevitably ends up occupying most of those tracks is ever greater uh, <sighs> substantiations of the drum kit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's the sound of record production, right, over the past 50 years. You could make a convincing case that what ha- the greatest distinguishing feature of the development of popular music from the past 50 years and the invention of multi-track recording is that the drum kit moves from being this marginal, secondary consideration in record production, even though it was always absolutely core to the live performance of that genre of music, it ends up just taking increasing prominence and increasing space <laughs> on the tracks of, um, of that recording studio and becomes the most complicated thing to track. Also the first thing to track, right, the yeah, foundation yeah. of everything else. Yeah. You know, any drummer will know this, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they, you know, when you go in to make your album, they're not throwing down, you know, uh, anything other than the drum kit first because it is considered to be the bedrock on which everything else is built and because it's all separated through channels suddenly we can think we're not going to have a successful pop pop record until we get that snare drum sound absolutely perfect and drive it as forward (laughs) to the center of the mix you know successful pop record is a vocal and a great snare drum sound essentially yeah right wow there's a reason for that Mm -hmm. and it hasn't always been like that but that has driven forward change in genre and change in technology for for the last 40 or 50 years i would argue i don't know about you chris but my mind is absolutely blown right now uh, it's, it's, <laughs> like, it's blown and it's, it's it's also full of questions totally so like because i'm now going to the 80s so like machines drum machines yeah yeah so because they were talked about as the thing that was going to replace drummers 100 yeah. percent, and they haven't yeah exactly is that because they sounded terrible no um well they did (laughs) (laughs) um they did and they didn't um they didn't sound anything like an acoustic drum kit no at least in their early versions um but people got attached to these sounds obviously Mm -hmm. and they became the basis of techno and house music in the Mm -hmm. 1980s Mm -hmm. so famously roland tr drum machines um tr standing for um transistorized sound mm-hmm. so they're not using like digital samples they're using like 
you know, a circuit board with Wii transistors to kind of approximate yeah. that kick drum or approximate that snare drum or hi hat. Um, so that was the 808 and 909, right? The 808, the 909, exactly. Uh, at the end of the 1970s, uh, another popular one was the CR78, um, the Computer Rhythm 78. Uh, <laughs> very sophisticated for the time. Yeah. Um, but these poor replacements of the acoustic drum kit became cherished as sounds in their old right, in their own right, rather. And because they were relatively inexpensive uh, to purchase, you know, these were intended as kind of like practice, um, you know, uh, things for guitarists to practice with, so they wouldn't need to, oh, <laughs> to wow, bring okay, out their right. drummer necessarily, right? Um, but there is also this discourse of replacing the drummer, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and that definitely happens throughout the 1980s, where suddenly people realize, like, these sounds are awesome. Mm. You know, I love a Roland 808 and 909 yeah, as much as the next person, and like, mm -hmm. I, you know, happy to, to listen to it. Um, and they became like the novel elements of lots of hit records over the course of the 1980s. Uh, same thing with sampled drums in the 1980s. Um, so you see that happening, you know, the same sort of principle happening with digital samplers. The argument that I want to make in the book, though, is that rather than replacing the drummer, all of those technologies that were maybe initially about replacing the drummers actually have the unintended effect of moving the drum kit to ever increasing centrality <laughs> uh, in the mix of a record, in the success of a pop hit, so that by the 21st century, it, basically any musician, whether you're a drummer or not, has to be able to think like a drummer and to, you know, think, think and also approach record production and songwriting with a drummer's sensibility in order to be considered a competent mus musician at all, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not so much that drummers are getting replaced. Rather, I think the argument should be that all other musicians have been forced to become drummers. Well, it's yeah. funny you say that because my college now makes all the, the instrumentals learn piano and drums. Well, exactly. On the on the jazz degree, yeah. all the... All the um, Horn players and other rhythm section players have to learn to play the drums. So in the 1990s, when I was studying, every student had to take keyboard skills, uh -huh. yeah, that's piano right. keyboard yep. skills. Mm -hmm. That was seen as like the archetypal instrument, on, you know, on which everything else was based. Hmm. Nowadays, it makes perfect sense mm -hmm. that any musician mm -hmm. has to have a reasonably competent understanding of how the drum kit yep. works. Mm. Otherwise, you'll never, you know, have the basic skill set required to create a successful record not even mm. that just talk to another drummer yeah. How, yeah. how many times have we found ourselves in a situation with a singer songwriter who's like just kind of make it a thing you're like well, what does that even mean you know they, mm. they can't t they can't even have a cursory conversation about yeah, it yeah it's it's a language that people need to learn yeah. and whereas before that was maybe a well-kept secret between uh drummers as a culture uh and maybe not a very well respected uh, skill set I think now the, the tides have really mm. turned really and shifted. it's considered absolutely core so, so where do you yeah. see the future then because uh, so if, if, it's been so pivotal up to now yeah what's left what's left you know <laughs> um, that's a good question <laughs> better 808s <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. 808s that can also clean your house yeah. um, no I it's it's extremely difficult to predict the future. Um, and so I'm very hesitant to do so. But 
I think that as a researcher, um, one of the things I'm interested in, I guess, are the materials out of which drum kits are made, mm -hmm. by which I mean like, it goes back to the old question. What is a drum kit? Uh, is it an acoustic, you know, bass drum, shell, snare drum, and cymbal in some sort of arrangement together, and then all sorts of other additional stuff on top of that? Or are we at a stage now where the drum kit is more an arrangement of sounds that mm. which can be played in any type of technological arrangement so that your computer programmer at Apple who's trying to get the next iteration of Apple Logic Drummer mm. together, are they having as much an, of an influence over what constitutes a drum kit mm. for the next generation as acoustic players are? I don't know um, in a shop like this like what the uh, differences in sales between acoustic drum kits and electronic drum kits for, for you We're guys still is. massively in favor of acoustic drum kits, yeah. but the the electronic market has a kind of very different place now. They're really seen as practice instruments, especially yeah. for newer players, people starting out that want to practice quietly. Yeah. But also, there's companies are now, like Roland, they're now finding, and Yamaha, finding ways to hybridize yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. So, like, yes, yeah, so it's almost like electronic splitting the camps, right? Yeah, a little bit. So yeah. there's electronic kits and then there's hybrid products. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that's a really interesting trajectory to me, you know, that say we want to think about the raw materials that went into making something called the drum kit at different points in history. You know, in the early 20th century, this would be a combination of various renewable materials, woods and metals, essentially. Mm -hmm. By the late 1950s, for the first time, and we didn't talk about this at all, but you have the introduction of plastic drum heads. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and those become instantly successful so that by the end of the 1960s almost no one is using calfskin heads anymore because everyone yeah. is using plastic drum heads. Yeah. Um, by the into the 1980s suddenly you have electronic drums which are made of like you know what we might call e-waste essentially like circuits and wires plastic and mesh mm. definitely not woods and metals mm -hmm. right um, other types of materials that can um, take different shapes too right take different shapes made of fundamentally different things um, and then into the 21st century, a third type of material that you could argue drum kits are made out of is data, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, so that yeah. actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, we are beyond this point of renewable woods and metals. We're beyond a point of like non-renewable plastic and oil-based products and into this world of data and code. And that that informs our idea, certainly of what a drum kit sounds like mm -hmm. as much as any of those other versions of the drum kit. So the future isn't exploring those territories, I guess. Yeah. Like it can go even further. Did you see, was it a couple of years ago, there's a girl called Gemma Hill who used to be the editor of Drummer Magazine. She now works for a company in Germany called Geva who we get um, certain brands from. She did an advert for Bosch okay, where she was playing, she made rhythm out of everything that Bosch sells. So drills, washing machines, yada 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 you know all these things all these metallic things so she would go around and play rhythms on them and they cr they cut this amazing advert together where it became hmm. that became the music so it's getting a stage where it could go even one step further if you think about the soundtrack to the terminator the original terminator uh -huh. all those 
those uh the the kind of backbeats to the to the 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 theme are almost hydraulic sounding yeah you know it can it can it's getting to a stage where kind of anything can be considered a groove really yeah. you can play, craig blundell made a whole series of just recording his house yeah so i guess another way of putting that is maybe that the drum kit as an idea has achieved a kind of stability which people are now interested in uh subverting breaking bending and pushing forward mm. uh and what seems likely to change is the way in which that gets um, perpetrated, you know, whether it's on Bosch drills and dishwashers <laughs> or within my laptop or on a traditional acoustic kit. But what doesn't seem to be going away is the importance of that in the contemporary soundscape. You know, yeah. whereas, you know, in the infancy of the instrument, this was like a marginal sound, a novel sound that suddenly, mm. you know, started to gain traction. Now it's really difficult to think of music, you know, not having yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. drums, that at pulse. least for this, at least for the audience of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, But I also don't think the art form will go away. Yeah, so, exactly. So learning to play something with touch mm-hmm. and tone and dynamics, because, I mean classical repertoire is still playing music that's centuries old mm-hmm. so if you go and study a classical percussion degree you're still playing all these composers music yeah the so drum kit now has this you know well over a century long history that that doesn't mean that like those early drum styles go away they survive and mm. they coexist mm. with everything that comes afterwards so it just becomes an, increase, an increasingly richer yeah. culture. Yeah. It's fascinating because one of the arguments, I don't know if you got this at college when you were there, but one of the arguments was that jazz music went through its whole cycle in 100 years. Mm-hmm. But the drum kit was invented for the music. The The drum kit as we know it was put together for the music. Uh-huh. And it's still changing. Yeah. I find it really fascinating. Hmm. It's a good world to be involved in. Yeah, I don't sure know. I'm, I'm still interested in the topic even after 10 years of having researched yeah, and written yeah. about it. Did you ever find... <laughs> when you're doing your 10 years of kind of combining this book together, did you ever find any element of stress in that? Because I imagine that's Stress like, in putting it together? Yeah, a little bit. Like in Hell yeah. Up, yeah, of course. Because <laughs> um, yeah. I imagine it can't have been the easiest thing to uncover yeah, man. a lot of it. You know, I, have you ever seen uh, A Beautiful Mind where like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it does. laughs> the guy's got all these notes on the wall and like yeah. all this red string? Like that was me, man. Uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing for a long time. Um, or, you know, basically you accumulate all of this, all these notes and these sources and this different research, and you need to kind of put it all together into a story. You know, broadly speaking, what the history of the instrument is, but you need to kind of weave together all of these elements that I've been talking about, which maybe aren't at the moment a standard part of how we tell that story mm-hmm. and think, okay, well, how do they fit? in a compelling way that unfolds in a, in with a logic that will make sense for the reader while at the mm. same time introducing hopefully lots of new ideas and ways of thinking about sure, this. Yeah, yeah. Like it it took me maybe five years before I thought of how to actually structure the book, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then the second half was trying to implement that structure. Yeah. yeah. So definitely some moments of stress and wobbliness throughout, but yeah. we got there in the end. <laughs> we did. Hence why you're sitting here right now. <laughs> Because um, I, I know a lot of guys as well, maybe not specifically authors, but guys who are maybe studying or girls who are maybe studying um, 
they have like a thing where they they have a certain thing that gets them in the writing mindset. Uh-huh. So like for some people it might be listening to jazz music. For yeah. other people it might be they'll have like a bowl of Rice Krispies before they start writing. You know? Sure. Did you have anything like that before you started writing? Um, I found that when I was writing, for me the biggest um, distraction from writing is the internet. And, yeah. and when I was really getting serious about taking all of the research and notes and getting down to writing the book... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a the book is 320 pages plus 60 pages of footnotes, and Whoa. so like that's a. It took me a long time to write it. Um, is what I'm trying to say, and the way that I did that that I found helpful was to turn off the Wi-Fi router in my living room, hmm. <laughs> and take the uh, instrumental jazz records that I'd been collecting like over <laughs> that time, and just using those as the kind of soundtrack to my writing. The nice thing about that is that you have roughly 20 minutes aside, which is about the amount of time that I need in order to kind of like give my brain a shake Mm. and like not get stuck into a funk. So there's something, you know, some people talk about, oh, vinyl sounds better, it's warmer or whatever. I I don't Mm. think that's true at all personally. (laughs) Um, But what it did do for me was like, okay, if you turn off the distraction of the internet and then have this way of like, playing music which entrains you puts you into a groove Mm. keeps you kind of productive um but then also forces you to get up every 20 minutes and shake yourself off and switch the side of the record or whatever and then go back to writing um i found that to be like practically speaking a pretty uh helpful way to to get me through Hmm. uh the anxieties of actually writing a book yeah Yeah. because i suppose then you also know in your mind that you have this specific 20 minutes to get things done yeah that's right know? so yeah. it keeps you it's almost it's like d- kind of it's dividing it into yeah, small yeah. manageable chunks yeah, yeah exactly yeah like practicing yeah. <laughs> just just like riding the bike yeah. um um turns out you know some of our former guests paul savage and johnny scott that is true it's amazing yeah yeah, yeah. I, well i mean i've been living in scotland for 17 years now actually even though the accent does not uh, rub off on me um <laughs> it's probably in everyone's best interest but <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, no, in my twenties, I, I played in bands, uh, and, and one band, uh, was a little indie pop group called Zoe Van Goey. Um, <laughs> you'll have to forgive the name, That's uh, great name. but, uh, we, we were signed to chemical underground records and we, oh, put out, wow. we put out two albums with them, both of which were recorded in chem 19 with Paul producing. That's awesome. Yeah. He's amazing. Eh? Oh, he's a brilliant, uh, drummer and engineer and, and guy. Yeah. yeah really nice sure. dude. And then, um, I guess, well, we were touring those records. Uh, we toured with lots of different bands, but uh, one of those was uh, was a group called Strike the Colors with uh, uh, a young man named Johnny Scott on the drums. So we spent some time in a transit van with Johnny. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and also, you know, uh, Johnny and, and the sort of whole coterie, I guess, of musicians and in Glasgow's um, indie music scene, mm. you know, yeah. it's the the reason why I love the city so much is that it's big enough that there's tons of music happening. You you know, you're spoiled for choice. There's always more than one amazing thing to go out to and see every single night. But it's small enough where you bump into the other people who have that same passion for music, and mm. you know, it's easy to make friends, even for like uh, an immigrant like myself to kind of come in from outside and you know uh, see familiar faces who are who are also usually like you know really nice people like paul and like johnny yeah. mm. and um and uh yeah it's just a it's a reason to stay you mm-hmm. know Hell yeah, yeah big time yeah oh yeah how did you find it recording at chem 19 oh 
fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. i'd recommend it to anybody yeah, <laughs> yeah when we went because we did a field trip for the podcast so we thought we'll go and get some footage and stuff and it just feels like a like a little it just feels homely yeah you know i think they're really really great at making you feel really really comfortable emma was actually in the shop oh yeah she was yeah. yeah so it was the first i'd ever really met emma nice so she's cool as well Mm. Do you have quickfire from that? I do. So yeah. this is a segment that's only ever been in one other episode of the podcast. I'm bringing it back. <laughs> I'm determined to make it a thing. Oh god! Because like it can't be. We, we, like yeah, we've been heavy academic, so let's have a little yeah. fun, right? So, um, strangest thing you've ever eaten? <laughs> <laughs> oh, can blame goodness. Google for these questions, by the way. Yeah, um, I was in Mexico not too long ago, and they had these dried crickets called chapulinas. Which were, uh, <sighs> what? Yeah. Oh, no. They sell them everywhere. I take my hat off to you if you did. That's amazing. <laughs> what, what did it taste it? like? Was it gross? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> normally I like, yeah, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. That's no. what I was expecting. Brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, your current um, Netflix binge. Do you know, I, it's been around for a few years, I think, but my wife and I are watching The Good Place. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. It's a brilliant show. Yeah. It's taken our mind off of all of the uh, bad news that's uh, going on in the Is world these Ted days. Is that with Ted Danson? Yeah. yeah ah, with Ted right. Danson. Yeah, I'd yeah. recommend it. It's a, it's a really fun, a fun, lighthearted show. It's got Chris and Bale in it. It does have Chris and Bale. Yeah. 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 No, it's good. Uh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Quick fire. Worst job you had before your current one? Uh, worst job I had was... Uh, I've been really lucky with jobs, but... Because the worst job was also kind of fun in a way. But I, for one summer, was uh, paying my way through school in a dinner theater, which meant I had to play the drums, which was the good part. Mm -hmm. But then also, in character, wait tables and serve drum pe drunk people. Um, and they were, you got, your pay was increased the more you got your audience to drink. And the more they <laughs> drank, the, uh, the worse they behaved. And we had to call the cops a few times on them. Uh, it was like wow. this is back in Canada. Um, Bring that to Scotland. Yeah, you'd, you'd made a millionaire. Good lord! It was <laughs> where bad actors go to die. Dinner theater. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, yeah, that was probably the worst. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, best gig or concert you have ever seen? Oh my goodness! Um, so many, really hard to choose. But the one that immediately springs to mind is the first gig I ever saw in Scotland, um, and that was many years ago. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was super into DJ Shadow and his album Introducing, which mm -hmm. has got some amazing drum sampling and programming on it. And I got to see him at the Barrowlands. Oh, uh, what a venue. Yeah. Brilliant. And, you know, I had I was 22 years old. I had never heard of the Barrowlands before. All I knew was that I was a kid from rural Canada. <laughs> this was the closest I'd ever been to you know being able to see dj shadow i was definitely going to go and so not only did I, did I see dj shadow at the barrel ends but i saw my you know the glasgow audience for the first time yeah. in the world mm -hmm. and like it was unbelievable yeah you know? like the yeah. the uh the feeling in the room was was amazing i saw him support radiohead oh amazing and that was my very first ever concert i was 17 that's a good gig to go to teenage yeah. fan club dj shadow and radiohead nice yeah wow. nice so, but dj shadow at the bars would have been I mean, the bar is for anything's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Big yeah. Time, yeah. yeah. I saw um, Father Son at Barrowlands. Oh, well. And that great. was mega. Yeah, I bet it they was. were absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But I think the whole, the, the atmosphere of the room, there's something about that room. Yeah. Man, there's something about it. 
It's yeah. just the floor bounces. Like yeah. it, the floor moves when people bounce on it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just phenomenal. And especially if people are there to see someone if it's if it's a headline show as well and it's a hometown headline show especially, yeah. it's just wow. Yeah. Biffy in there as well, Biffy yeah. Clyro. Um Favourite biscuit. A biscuit I'd never even heard of until moving to this country was the Jaffa cake. Yes. <laughs> and confirmed that it is a biscuit. There you go. You heard it from a, uh, from a doctor. Uh, there you I, go. I feel like it's a cake. Is it a, is it a I cake feel or a so. biscuit? It's the, it's the great debate. It's on the cusp. Uh, yeah. there, that's, that's maybe the most diplomatic answer to that. <laughs> yeah. It is both. Um, is that the mold for quickfire? Pretty much, yeah. I had one written down called unpopular opinion. So, this is <laughs> well, I feel like a vinyl not being the best sound is already the most yeah. unpopular. There you opinion. go. There's your controversial opinion for the Boom. day. Um, what's next for you, man? Um, well, great question. Uh, I'd like to make some more music. Uh, mm-hmm. and actually, in terms of research, having written this book on the drum kit, um my next idea for a research project is to kind of extend that and assemble a team of people to do a research project on the history of mass produced instruments more generally. Wow. Uh, because I think that one thing that really got me excited about this, about writing this book on the kit was that it started out being a history of the drum kit, but what it ended up being for me anyway, was being a history of music from a perspective of a particular instrument. And I just thought that was such uh, a refreshing way for me to engage in thinking about popular music history in new ways. Mm-hmm. And I would love to do something similar uh, for instruments, for basically thinking about a history of music from the perspective of instruments as a whole. And conveniently for me, mostly in academic scholarship, uh, most of the existing research on, on musical instruments kind of ends when things start being mass produced. That's where a lot of scholars lose interest. Mm. Um, but for me, that's like where my interest begins. Oh, wow. <laughs> so thinking about the history of instruments as a way of talking about, for instance, um, globalization and its history, thinking about like um, the rise of, for instance, East Asian musical instrument manufacturing Mm -hmm. being a really interesting mirror to talk about um, the changing political dynamics between continents and the move away from like uh, a European imperial model towards an American uh, industrial model Mm -hmm. towards a more globalized model where you have different elements at play, not least East Asia. You can tell that actually like just thinking about like what companies and what manufacturers are popular at different moments in history and how do mm. those things influence one another. Mm. So I think there's like a whole lot of interesting questions one could ask around that area. Um, I haven't done the research yet, so I don't actually know what the answers are, uh, <laughs> let alone half the questions, but that would be a, a, a direction I'm interested in exploring. Cool. Do you um, still play? Do you still play regularly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I play less than I would like to um, just because the day job as, a, as an academic sort of teaching, marking, writing, researching, this sure, sort of thing yeah. takes up a lot of time. Um, not so that I don't enjoy it, I do, but I, I love playing the drums. Yeah. Um, so what kit do you have? Uh, at the moment, because I live in a two-bedroom tenement flat, uh, I've got just a, a wee Yamaha hip gig, which, you know, they came in yeah. that those crazy yellow colors. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I had to um, 
afford myself the dignity of, of, of getting that rewrapped in white marine pearl. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I've got uh, this little Yamaha hip gig, but uh, got a white marine curl, pearl finish on it. Um, you know, one day if I had more space, I'd love to, you know, in, get a a large larger drum kit. Just by which I mean like a, a proper twenty-two inch kick drum, and yeah. you know. Uh, I was looking downstairs at your showroom and uh, <laughs> that Sonor Vintage kit um, mm. with the white marine pearl finish. Good looks, choice. Yeah. Looks pretty sweet to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's the kit you've basically uh, got. That's when we were talking yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's no secret how much I love that drum set. You know? Yeah, um, I haven't sold them for fifteen years. That's been my favorite kit that I think I've ever owned. So. Yeah. Um, where can people buy your book? Uh, you can order it online via all the usual places so amazon etc although if you want to get the best price on it i actually have a discount code i can share with your listeners Holla. booyah so um it's published by oxford university press and if you go to their website which is oup.com academic and you enter the discount code um, and this is in all caps, A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. I wish they could have made it easier to remember. Well, we, we will put it in the show notes and stuff, and we'll be sure to, like, if, when we share the episode, we'll be sure to let people know. Amazing. Yeah. So if you punch that code in, then you can save 30% off the retail price. Um, but, you know, you could also go to your high street and ask Waterstones to order it. They won't. It's not the kind of book that they'll have in stock, but they'll definitely have it on their computer available to order. It's got international distribution, so it um, e- should be easy to find. And Amazon and all the rest of those places where folk can buy books as well would have it as well. Do you use social media? Uh, I do. Yeah, I've got Twitter where I'm Dr. Matt Brennan. And then on Facebook, uh, the, I've got pages that are um, one for Matt Brennan and another one for Kick It. A social history of the drum kit and i should also say that um hopefully we'll have we'll have to see at the end of this month on thursday march 26th i have a book launch scheduled at the old hairdressers mm. which is free to enter where we'll have copies of the book and where um Glas- glasgow jazz drumming legend Stu brown will be playing a live set oh, taking yeah. us through the evolution of drumming styles yeah, he's, <coughs> he's done that twisted tunes thing and all that yeah he's exactly got things amazing eh? yeah he's he's a brilliant player and uh, he's got a keen interest in history so that that will be great however <laughs> <laughs> um it is at the end of march and so we'll have to kind of watch this space for um for coronavirus unfortunately mm-hmm. uh so i it, it, if we have to cancel it we'll just postpone it until a later date you can search on eventbrite uh the words kick it book um like three different words uh it should bring up the event and if we do cancel it or postpone it which at this point seems possible mm. um then we'll let folk know you know um how to find out more information about the new date for it uh, when the time comes sure great Nice well, one. thank you so much for coming to see us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank thanks you. for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, we could probably do like a part two and three and four. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we could quite feasibly sit here for another in your hour. Brain. But yeah. Uh, yeah, man, that's been really insightful and something really different. So yeah. we really appreciate you. I probably, I, it's made for a great teaser for the book, I believe. Jeez, yeah. I, I hope folk listening, uh, if you're interested in, in getting yourself a copy, I, I hope that you enjoy it and uh, let me know what you think. Great, definitely. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Take care. Thanks.